You're all set, Ken? All right, so today we are continuing on Chapter 3 of the Kingdom of God series. So this is Chapter 3G, our seventh uh, message uh, under Chapter 3. If you turn over to the back of the page, you'll see the uh, 15 titles, uh, some of which we did uh, actually Chapter 1 in one message. We did Chapter 2 in three messages. And uh, we're on the seventh message of chapter three, and we'll probably have about seven or eight more on chapter three, because what we're looking at uh, in chapter three is major biblical themes. In the first chapter, we just saw how the kingdom of God is the central, most important topic in Scripture. In the second chapter, we define the kingdom of God in 12 statements. In the third chapter, I'm on Roman numeral two, if you're following in your outline there. We have already covered uh, what I called plenary infallibility. Those of you who are theologians will note that there's actually a, a difference between inerrancy and infallibility, which I did not really cover in that. But we covered more how God inspired the writers of Scripture and why it's the foundation and basis of all we think and believe as Christians and so forth. Uh, we looked at eternal decree, the idea that God knows the end from the beginning. He would be less than God if he had any surprises. He already knows what you're gonna decide and what you're gonna choose and, and has foreordained all, all of it. Uh, we looked at covenant and covenant theology. There's eight aspects of all covenants and uh, covenant theology is kind of usually juxtaposed uh, against dispensational theology, which was invented in the 1800s and has become uh, the, the, the paradigm or the way of interpreting scripture of about 95% of Bible-believing Christians, uh, although it's a completely modern and new idea and most unscriptural. Uh, and it has been probably the source of why the church has lost impact and influence in our culture progressively over the last 150 years or so. And we are going to look at the, uh, dispensationalism along with another number of other topics in chapter 12 when we look at current concepts that conceal the kingdom of God. Uh, from the people of God. Reasons why we, uh, you know, in, in my 40 years of being a Christian, I've only heard a handful of messages by a handful of, of Bible teachers that understand that the kingdom of God is the central and most important theme of all scripture. I often will survey the audience and most people will say they've never heard a message on, on the kingdom of God. And most people think the kingdom of God is something like going to heaven or uh, something that happens in heaven when king, the kingdom of God has to do with the present realities here, now, and on the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is, is, is in heaven. So uh, if you look at Roman numeral 2, uh, see where we're covering chapter 3, you can see some of the upcoming messages that I'm excited about. We're going to look at the full implications, the, the scope and limitations and, and nature of the fall of, fall of man. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, uh, lots of people will say that, that God's redemption is a major theme of scripture, but really it's a subset of a more major theme, God's restoration of all that was lost at the fall. And, uh, we'll look at, uh, God's enemies and, and many other topics. But today what I want to get into is I want to start on th the first of three weeks on creation, and uh, you think, well, gee, how can you uh, speak three weeks on creation? Well, cre creation is foundational uh, to everything in the Bible. 
there's not a single subject in these major topics that we're talking about that creation isn't necessary to understand that topic in itself. If we look at God's eternal decree, God created the heavens and the earth for his foreknown preordained purpose that he's working out in a time-space continuum. God lives outside of time. He invented time. He lives outside of uh, geographical space continuums. He created the material dimension for his eternal purposes, which he, which he declares from the beginning. So, uh, the, uh, you know, so creation becomes a, a, a major interpretive principle. Uh, if you're going to look at redemption or restoration, what God is restoring and what he's redeeming us from is from all the implications of what happened when man fell from creation, from, his, from God's original design and original intent. And what's very important to understand, if you're ever going to share the gospel effectively, if you're going to ever disciple people effectively, if you're going to even know what you're aiming for as a Christian, one of the things you're aiming for is to be restored to the fullness of the image of God. Every man is created in what in theology they call the imago Dei, the image of God. That is why uh, we have people sitting in the second row for, the, for probably the first time ever. Uh, we have two ladies who work at the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center uh, sitting in the second row. Why? Now, I don't know why they're sitting in the second row, but I do know why they work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Uh, because man was created in God's image. And because every life, a, a drunk in a gutter, the most damaged of, of human lives has value worth laying down your whole life for. And despite the, the, the depths of the fall of man, which we will look at, which has no reference point or, or way of understanding it without understanding creation, despite the depths of how, how much creation was damaged by the fall of man, Yet every person you're talking to yet retains the image of God. So they have a sense of purpose. It's interesting that part of what existential the philosophy is, an atheist uh, philosophy that refuses to acknowledge God as existing or God as creator, is that they are very upset because inside themselves, they know they're here for a purpose. But if you deny God, there is no possibility of finding any purpose for living. And so uh, in the original forms of existentialism, they, it is man shaking his fist at God and saying, I'm here for a purpose. I know I'm here for a purpose. And I can't admit that I'm here for a purpose because that would be to admit God. And that I'm not willing to do because that would mean I can no longer be my own God. I was having a Bible study with someone just a couple weeks ago, and uh, we referenced the movie Network, which is a movie that won a few Academy Awards from 1973. And uh, that features this uh, mad prophet of the airways named Howard Beals. And uh, I'm quoting him, but and I won't quote the full quote lest I offend anyone. But he, he says, he, he goes, you've got to get mad. And first, you've got to say, I'm a human being, blankety blank. Be, uh, my life has value. Well, how does he know that? Because every human being knows that. Then, 
every atheist, which means against God, knows there's a God. Why would they be so motivated that the new atheism that works so hard at converting people to there is no God and so forth? Why would they, why would you care? If you really believe there was no God, you wouldn't care. They believe deeply there is a God. That's why they're so motivated because they're running, as the Bible says, they're uh, all fallen men are trying to suppress the truth of God and primarily the truth that God created you. There is no, there is no uh, accountability. There's no basis for judgment. There's no basis for the sanctions of covenant. Uh, part of the eight parts of covenant includes sanctions. There's no basis for sanctions in covenant if God is not the covenant Lord. Remember we talked about Susan Tree covenants in the ancient world and how they were the imposition of, of uh, blessings and ownership and responsibilities and all sorts of things from a superior to an inferior. God is offering us covenant on the basis of his being a creator. So let's, uh, let's get, just go through uh, a few scriptures today about covenant. And then if you'd flip over on your outline, just so I can tell you where we're going, uh, Roman numeral four, we may get to touch on a little today, probably not. Uh, that's really the content of next week. And then we're going to spend a week just talking uh, some broad generalizations about the whole creation evolution debate. And uh, if you haven't read or studied much on that, I'm going to arm you a little bit to understand that you don't need to be intimidated in the least bit by the religion that of modern man called scientism. Scientism is the idea that if enough scientists say it's true, then it's true. But and they, they, when they are making pronouncements about things that actually are not scientific. So the idea of origins of man is not a scientific issue in the least bit. It's a philosophical or theological issue because science deals with per current processes, that is current laws and uh, physics and chemistry and biology and so forth, where you can, uh, you can, gather a hypothesis or a theory about, and you can develop tests to test that hypothesis or theory. Okay, so first of all, you can't even prove that the current laws of, of science have always been the laws of science. That itself is an atheistic assumption that, that assumes facts, not in evidence. You can't you can't assume that because if God create, if there's a creator and if God created the laws of physics and the chemistry and so forth, he can change them whenever he wants, thus miracles. So uh, to assume that current present processes have always been happening exactly the same way they're happening, guess what? No scientist has that old. They just weren't there. And therefore, it's a matter of philosophical speculation. There is no evidence about it either way, nor could there be. So I'm going to show you a number of reasons why you don't need to be intimidated that just because you've you got to remember the majority of scientists have been wrong the majority of times in human history. I can remember having to fight being intimidated in the 1970s when I attended uh, 
uh, what's the Truex, uh, Dave Truex's wife, Jenny, Jenny Merriam, who uh, her dad was a professor at the university and he was an extreme left-wing atheist guy. And it was supposed to be a course in political science, but it was a co- actually a course in his axes to grind. And so we had to read books that had nothing to do with political science. Uh, very typical of the 70s. And we didn't have to smoke a pot and write on our theories about it, but uh, like in some political science classes. But uh, in, in, the, in the 70s, you missed the 70s. It was a great time. Um, but uh, smoke weed and describe your feelings. Uh, and get an A. Drink. There was. Uh, there actually was a professor who, uh, in in lieu of a final, you, he just invited everyone over to drink vodka and eat caviar, and if you came, you got an A. And uh, <laughs> so, because nothing was true and nothing's real, nothing's important anyway. So, uh, but in this class, uh, we had to read this book called The End of Affluence, and it was about how everything is running out. We're running out of everything, and the with within five or ten years the earth is going to go into this time of great chaos because there will be no food and there won't be enough this and that and of course these ideas go back to a guy named thomas malthus in his uh, book principia geometrica but part of the whole thing was we are entering a new ice age and the earth is getting colder and colder and if in the 70s you didn't believe that the scientific community considered you an idiot Here we are 40 years later. If you don't believe in global warming, I encourage you all to take your shirts off and go outside and believe in global warming. For If you don't believe in global warming, you're an idiot. Frankly, there's not enough data. There's not enough time. There's no, such, there's no way to gather enough data. And no, and no one can predict the future. So there's, there's lots of reasons not to be intimidated by the fact that if 95% of scientists say you're an idiot if you don't believe it, I just raise my hand and just go, I, I don't believe it. <laughs> so I have a friend at Wright State who was a Christian uh, when he was a freshman and even came to Grace Christian Fellowship one Sunday and uh, never came to Rock Campus Fellowship or anything. Just saw, And uh, he was a Christian. He, he was too busy for our group because he was leading worship in several churches and so forth. And by six months into his freshman year, he was a very devoted, probably the most enthusiastic, committed atheist I've met. Uh, very on fire for there is no God and Christianity is full of nonsense and so forth. And so we have fun debating different things. And, and I encouraged him to read a certain author. And so he Googled the author and he discovered that despite the fact that the author read an average of six books a day, about 20 periodicals a day, he wrote 90 books and, and thousands of people considered him probably the, the, one of the best uh, theologians of the 20th century. He said, I can't read an idiot like that. He believes in six day creation. Before he read a single word of what the guy had to say, he just read someone else, that someone said he believed in six-day creation, and he rejected it without looking, without write, reading a single word of the guy. So, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, th- two weeks from today when uh, we will dismantle some of the arguments for evolution for you. So, uh, back to page one. Let's go through some uh, scriptures. It's so kind of a hard topic for me to get off, uh, off of. Um, 
Can't can't wait to deal with. Uh, I we threw in the gold and out came this cow. All right, so uh, two weeks you'll get to hear about that two weeks from today. So some scriptures about creation. Now there is no way. It's kind of like uh, I have a teaching about out of a series I did called Biblical Vocabulary. And just to take the word repentance, for example, repent or repentance, I have eight defining statements about repentance in in that uh, teaching. And then I give some sample verses that illustrate those eight meanings of the word repentance. However, I, I have a rule that I just put as many verses as I can fit on the front and back of a page. And there are 160 verses in the New Testament alone that have the word repent in them. So, obviously, I couldn't list them all in one teaching. Creation's the same way. It actually took me, just the verses that are on the front page, actually took me about four or five hours last night to assemble those verses, finished about two or three on that part of it, and uh, finished the rest at around five or so. But um, the, uh, the hard part was simply this. How do you narrow this down? How do I, for instance, if you just take uh, Isaiah and you focus on uh, how Isaiah turns in chapter 40, in Isaiah 40 to 66, the word created appears like 13 times. And then if you put in, he made us, uh, he formed us, fashioned us, forget it. (laughs) There would be no way, I couldn't give you a majority of the verses uh, in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 on creation. So how do we limit this? I, what I try to do is just take a representative sample from some of the major parts of Scripture. So let's start with Genesis 1, because Genesis 1 starts in the baseball re- reference of the Bible, in the beginning. Uh, first time baseball is mentioned right off in the Bible. Uh, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first lines of, of the Bible uh, is about how God created. And the word beginning is... Uh, Translated in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament with the word arche, which, uh, which we get archaeology from, and archaic. Um, a lot of you think I'm old-fashioned and so forth. I'll know you're developing your vocabulary when you say, Greg is archaic. I am. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm just out from another time period outside of this time period. So. And I just don't fit in with the, the postmodern world that well. I'm archaic. So uh, John 1, 1, N-R-K, and halagos, in the beginning was the word. So this is the same concept in Genesis 1, 1. Before there was time, when God created time, at, that, at the point where God created time, he created the heavens and the earth. As we're going to see in two weeks, uh, to be... To be a non-creationist, you have to make a leap of faith that materialism always existed. The problem is that defies all the laws of science because nothing can, can create nothing. And if all matter breaks down increasingly to less harnessable forms, if matter was eternal, then matter would cease to exist. <laughs> so matter, the truth of the matter is, scientifically, based on the laws of science, if they apply, then matter had to start at some point. Right? So 
The Bible starts with a statement to that effect that in the beginning, when time began, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that means he created the entire material dimension of the earth. And there was something, it's kind of interesting that there has, they've been looking ever since Darwin for a pseudoscientific explanation of origins, and so now they've uh, uh, hit on this Big Bang Theory, which is not a television show that they run reruns of, uh, about some nerdy gay guys, uh, or whatever, or effeminate guys, they're not really gay. They like girls, but they're they're wimpy, nerdy, wimpy guys or whatever. It's actually a scientific concept called the Bang, Big Bang Theory, and it's and uh, and if you read your Bible, you should assume that 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 creation came about something like that all along, because when God said, "Let there be light," the that light began to expand, and when God says something, it's eternal, unless He has some sort of law that revokes it. So when God said, let there be light, what he said is, let the the universe start spitting out stars and planets and, uh, well, stars mainly, sources of light, and let them, let there be light, 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 light. His light is like, uh, some of you are old enough to remember a thing called records. And in, in, when there was records, there was uh a time where your record would get stuck. And so your record might go, let there be light, 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 light. When God said, let there be light, he that word is still going forth. So the galaxies will continue to unfold until, uh, and if God has some reason, that he says, that's enough light. But since he is light, and all of creation reflects him, there's probably no time that he'll ever stop unfolding the stars and the galaxies, and they'll continue to spin out for billions and billions and billions of years, for billions and billions and billions of light years, because there will never be enough light uh, in the creation to totally reflect the fact that he is light. So had people started with a creationist viewpoint, they should have been looking for something like the Big Bang Theory all along, except not just by chance. Because how could the how could nothing, how could the matter be, be created out of nothing? It had to be created out of someone. So, the Bible starts with creation. The very first line asserts something. By the way, the Bible never defends the existence of God. The Bible depicts a world in which every person knows that you were created by God. Everybody knows that. In the essence of man's sin nature, what happened to us at the fall is we received a power inside of us that tries to run from that fact. You're, uh, you weren't searching for God he was he came in Christ searching for you the truth is through through what we our sin natures we were all trying to run from the truth of god and suppress the truth of god in unrighteousness in creation the bible assumes that you know that and that's why in psalm 14:1 it says the fool has said in his heart that there is no god it's the essence of what the Bible doesn't call uh, foolishness, uh, being stupid or unintelligent. It's much deeper than that. 
it it's the it's the running from reality it's the running from the facts that every man is highly motivated to do and i had a guy say to me i could believe it a lot easier if i could believe in miracles and i said but you're the miracle that you're looking for right in front of yourself because everything the bible says about your nature is what you're experiencing right now you're experiencing i ought to have some kind of purpose that's bigger than what the purpose is of our narcissistic uh, shallow society our narcissistic shallow society says get more toys get make more money become more famous uh ex you know dominate other people whatever self 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 and something deep inside you says there ought to be more than that and that's god's miracle witness to you quit running from the fact that you are an extremely important person and it will take all the study habits and all the embracing of crosses and dying of self and all the grace that you can acquire to even begin to journey toward the purposes for uh, that God has for you. I got to move along. Uh, see Psalm 19, which is all about creation and covenant. Creation and Torah. The, the law was given as part of the covenant. Remember the, the eight principles of covenant are, include that there's not only sanctions, but there's do's and don'ts in every covenant. And when God, when God made covenant with Israel in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, he immediately jumps into Exodus 20 and gives them the Ten Commandments. And from there, he, he goes into the rest of the Bible, which gives us case laws about the Ten Commandments. John 1, 1 through 5, uh, John Weiss did uh, some teachings on this verse, I believe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. NRK and Halagos and Kai Halagos and Prostantheon. That just means uh, in, in, in the beginning of time, there was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God. That is, he was uh, with, in a sense of they were bosom to bosom. They, they were inextricably intertwined, and the Word himself was God. And... Uh, so um, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. You'll study in our theology class, those of you who are taking it, uh, you'll discover, study the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that God created the material world out of nothing. Now, evolutionists believe that the material world created itself out of nothing, which is nothing can create nothing there has to be someone or something capable of creating something that something or someone had to always exist or nothing could exist if in the beginning there was nothing we wouldn't be here this morning <laughs> so uh all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that came into being there, there's not a accident that that word nothing is there and apart from him nothing came into being because nothing can create nothing someone who is everything who's who is our all in all created everything in him was life uh in 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 the life was the light of men and the first thing the bible reveals about the nature of god is that god is light 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 the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, ESV says, overcome uh, it, 
amplified it and expand, expanded Bible say overpowered it. Uh, that is that we, in modern times, we think of the darkness as being covering the face of the earth and being this great force or whatever. But that burned out exit sign back there that needs to have a 25 watt bulb put in it. Um, when you come here late at night, if, if someone has put a 25 watt bulb in there, uh, Sunday morning guys, uh, hint, uh, we should do that. Um, that little 25 watt bulb lights up the sanctuary enough for me to do whatever I need to do. If I'm taking out the trash or whatever, and it's three in the morning, I, one 25 watt bulb dispels a lot of darkness. Darkness does not overcome light. Light overcomes darkness. All you have to do is light a little candle and the darkness is, is fleeing. So one of the motifs in Genesis 1 and in John 1 here is that there, before God created anything, there was darkness. But the creation itself is bringing more and more and more light. Creation is conquering the darkness. And in the end, although we happen to live in a time period for a number of reasons where in Western culture, Christianity is becoming increasingly watered down and increasingly darkened and increasingly off base and so forth, yet on a global scale, Philip Jenkins, Nathan's favorite new guy, uh, who is a great demographic historian and wrote the, the book called The Coming of Global Christianity. Just based on the current growth of Christianity, Christianity will dominate the, world, the planet within the next 30 years. For the first time ever, about 12 or 14 years ago, Christianity passed Islam as the number one religion in, in, uh, in adherence in the world. And it's growing uh, which, as Tim Keller points out in The Reason for God, the world is becoming less religious. Atheism and humanism are growing, and re uh, religions are growing. But the only growing religions are Christianity and Islam. All other Hinduism is, is declining because it doesn't have much philosophical basis to resist reality on. L more and more Hindus are just Hindus out of tradition and culture, but don't really believe the ideas of the, of the faith. Shintoism is declining. It, vestiges of it hang on in Japan, but hardly any modern Japanese really believe the ideas of Shintoism. Uh, and the, the light of Christianity is growing in such a way that it will smash all idols, and it will smash all darkness, and it will liberate people from all superstition, and that will happen over the next few centuries. At the first Easter, there were 30 uh, or so cowering people in a room afraid to go outside. By the second Easter, there were thousands. By the hundredth Easter, there were probably over a million and every Easter since then, the number of adherents and followers of Christ continues to grow. And it will until Christianity fills the planet with, for the glory of God before Jesus comes back. That's the message of the Bible, by the way. Not the modern, oh, Annie M, it's a twister and it's going to get darker and darker and will there be faith? All right. 
Psalm 100, one of my favorite psalms, jumping back up there. Uh, Know the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, if you're not familiar with Psalm 100, uh, we kind of advocated a, a devotional book a couple years ago called Note to Self by uh, Joe Thorne, I think what his name was. Is still, probably. <laughs> he probably hasn't changed his name. Uh, uh, and uh, the book, uh, I think the fourth or fifth meditation are from Psalm 100. But in a nutshell, Psalm 100, a very short little psalm, I think it's six verses, uh, maybe five, has seven action verbs where it gives an imperative. An imperative is not a suggestion but a command. And seven times it gives us an action to take toward worshiping the Lord. So it starts with enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, be thankful, you know, etc. Seven times it tells us to shout to the Lord and sing to the Lord. There's seven action verbs, but right in the middle is why. And here is the why. Because it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. Isn't that a good thing to know? You're becoming a Christian wasn't your idea. Guess what? Your being born wasn't your idea. Your being born was God's merciful love that said, how could I withhold from this guy Davion, who he's conceived of, <laughs> the glories of, of who I am? I want him to share in this. The reason you have children is because you have a great marriage and you love one another and you, and you want to uh, give to them all that you are. God uh, made us, we are his people. And so you see right in that verse, you see both creation, he made us, and you see that we are his people, that is, he made covenant with us. Because there's no other people in the earth that are his people. And that's kind of the message of the whole Bible is that after man fell, there became two people groups in the earth, those that are running from being his people, those that are opposing his people, those who are opposing him, those who are still groping about in darkness like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah when the angels put uh, darkness on them so they couldn't find their way to Lot's door. The whole world is, is trying to find its way to Lot's door and, has, and is completely blind and is completely lost. And he comes and begins to open your eyes by the miracle of helping you begin to see that you that things are exactly as the Bible says they are. And the realities that you are blind to, he begins to help you see. And the Christian faith is a journey out of that darkness, it progressively into the light, more and more and more and more. That's why one of the most important things you can do besides study the Bible for yourself or uh, or go to church, more importantly than either of those, is find someone who sees the light more clearly and fully than you do and have them open your eyes. That's called discipleship, and that was done throughout the whole Bible. I'm not up here because I'm such a crafty fellow, or be, despite the fact that I, you know, I started off my Christian life with, with uh, four and a half months of studying eight or ten hours a day, followed by uh, four years of studying three hours a day, that had less impact on me than great Christians who opened my eyes to what I was studying. Old, older Christians. 
Larry was just in Florida this week visiting a pastor friend of ours who, uh, uh, to this day, I just realized he opened my eyes to so many things. And I wouldn't uh, have gotten through certain seasons in my life unless I had believed some of the things that he taught me. Where else can we go? I mean, uh, we got about, hopefully we can finish. Let's, let's just look at, again, I'm, you know, we got one here from uh, John. We got one from Genesis, one from the wisdom literature. Let's try to get one or two from, uh, from the New Testament after we get, uh, let's get one from the law, Deuteronomy, and one from the prophets. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 4, 31 through 40. Now, wherever you see the dot, dot, dot is because I basically was trying to get this to all fit on one page, and I spent hours take, taking out as much as I could and still not lose the flow or the context. So if you want to, and I sure hope you will, read the whole thing without the dot, dot, dots in, in, a, in a book you all have called the Bible. Uh, you can find it online. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you. Isn't that good? Nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Right there, you have covenant and fathers, major themes of the Bible, tied into, indeed, ask now concerning the former days, since the day that God created man on the earth. See, creation is the basis of all the other major themes we've been talking about. That's why we're going to spend three weeks on it. Has anything been done like this great thing? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking? The Bible postulates a world where people are in darkness and they have a thing called a spirit, and they were meant to be able to hear the voice of God. But since the fall of man, they have not been able to hear the voice of God until God grants them to be able to hear his voice. No, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But he did say, my sheep know my voice. If he's granting you, uh, you know, someone sent me a text uh, recently saying uh, that I've had a lot of Bible studies with for a long time. And, and they, you know, they, they got one of the most important points in the text. It was clear. They said, thanks for opening my eyes to experiencing the presence of God. A lot of people go to church that don't know the Lord. But what it means to, to be a Christian is to have God open your eyes in such a way is that he that you can hear him talking to your spirit. And uh, you, you're journeying from blindness to seeing. You're journeying from being deaf to hearing. And uh, as you start uh, reading the Bible and thinking about the things of God, God will act on your behalf. Just ask him, show me yourself. He won't do it necessarily the way you're wanting to. Greeks look for wisdom, and, and Jews, that religious people, look for miracles. And uh, Greek people look for philosophy. But God will demonstrate himself on his terms to you. One of the re ways that fallen man stumbles is fallen man says, I demand evidence in the way I want the evidence. But God is giving you evidence. The heavens are telling the glory of God. So as any people, uh, where was I? Uh, as a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders. There's the, this, these verses have the message of the whole Bible in them. 
God takes us out of the nations of the world to create a separate nation. The church is a, is a people within the peoples. It's a nation within the nations. It's God's separate people living a separate lifestyle. If the world doesn't think you're a little weird, you probably haven't just grown in Christ enough yet. <laughs> Give it time. They hopefully will. Um, because they have no frame of reference to understand the wisdom that you live in. All right. Uh, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, and he brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations mightier than you to give you their land for an inheritance. No, uh, take it to heart, know in your heart, that is, that he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you, grace, that it may go well with you and your children, and that you may live long on the land in which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So in these verses, we see creation and we see covenant. Um, we see sanctions because he's saying, if you don't, if you obey and you live for me, you'll live long in the earth and you'll and your children will be blessed. But if you do your own thing, you're, there will be consequences, and your children won't be blessed, and you won't dwell in the land. As if you throw off the, the ideas of God for, for a, a bowl of lentil stew or humanistic porridge, you, you'll eat the consequences. And our nation has, has uh, progressively thrown off Christ and Christianity. You know, there was a time when Supreme Court cases actually stated as part of their defense of their decision, this is a Christian nation. It's right in written in their their uh, arguments for why they decided this or that, and that all changed in the fifties for a number of reasons. But uh, you know, suddenly the Constitution meant the opposite of what it had meant for one hundred fifty years. <laughs> Interestingly, and that that's I wish I could get into all that. But you see creation in here. You see rest redemption. Redemption is he came knocking on your door and he took you out of the nations of this world into to be in his people. Isaiah 42, I'm running out of time. Behold my servant who I am hold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have, my, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will, faith, will faithfully bring forth justice. The kingdom is going to grow and grow and grow through this person called the servant, who is Christ, uh, who is also Israel. Who is, we are the servant and he, because he is the servant. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, that is the nations, will wait expectingly for what? For antinomianism, for the modern theology that the law is not important. No, the coastlands are waiting expectedly for a people who live by the law of God being written on their hearts and minds. I will appoint you a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open blind eyes. Uh, now I declare, behold, the former things have come. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So you see in these verses, creation, eternal decree, calling, law, Torah, covenant, all of it. All these major themes of the Bible are right in those few verses. Revelation, just jumping to the end of the Bible. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Now, that doesn't just mean 
a cutesy thing, you know, when we worship I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha was the creative principle. It was the first mover of all things. He's saying that before there was anything, he's saying what John 1, 1 that we already read said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was toward God. All things were created through the Alpha. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's the beginning in the beginning. That is, he's the thing that started time, space, material, creation, life. All of it came about through him. To be an evolutionist, you have to actually make a leap of faith to believe that life came from nine life at some point. We'll look at that in two weeks. Uh, jump over to the next page, and we'll just jump down to Colossians. We'll get into this next week, but uh, Colossians has it all right there. Uh, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. We'll talk about what that means over all creation, for by him all things are created, both in heavens and in earth. So ho hopefully I've just given us enough smatterings of, of scriptures this week to be a foundation for next week, going into basically the implications, why is creation so significant? Why is it actually woven in every chapter and every page and every concept of the Bible? There's no, there's no major idea of the Bible that you can endorse from being a creationist. And we'll see that that's why all, all of modern man uh, puts his attack on the Bible, on the idea of creation, because if there's no creator, then there's no accountability. You can do whatever the hell you want. And that's what, that's what sinful man wants to do. Sinful man wants to be his own God and do whatever he wants with no, and, and believe there's no consequences, that tomorrow I won't, that tonight I'm going to get drunk and high and I'm not going to have a hangover tomorrow. So anybody had that work out real well for you? Uh, usually there's more than a hangover tomorrow. There's all kinds of consequences. Amen.